episode of the comment section, a dispatch uh, fan podcast that is the scented candle in the dark sewers of internet takes. I'm Kevin from Texas, and I'll be hosting this week as we dive into a discussion about politics and current events, pop culture, and, and more. Although this week, the hot topic of conversation at Americans' dinner tables and water coolers and comment sections everywhere is the uh, historical moment that we're all witnessing uh, just play out in front of us, and that's the former President Donald Trump's impeachment trial in the U.S. Senate. So our humble little fan pod here will be heavy on impeachment talk, just like our little pirate ship, the unofficial Discord channel, let alone Twitter, social media, everywhere else. Um, the comment sections for many of the dispatch newsletters and articles. So uh, as we get going, let me go ahead and introduce the other fans uh, joining me today on the pod. I'm going to take it around the country here. So uh, heading over to the Midwest, we've got the lapsed Catholic, the unapologetic progressive and keeper of books, Angie from Ohio. Hey, Angie. Hi, everyone. Uh, heading a little southeast, I guess, the young man that proves uh, each day he's probably too wise for his age. Uh, the future journalist, actor, and by God, I hope a politician one day, Jack from Kentucky. Hey, Jack. Hey, everyone. And then hailing from the uh, Deep South, also joining us is the software developer by day, Star Trek fan by night, and admitted damn Yankee, if there ever was one, Alan from Georgia. Hey, Alan. Hey, everyone. We're going to go back west and joining us from the uh, Big D, or as us Fort Worthians would say, the worst part of DFW, a biochemist turned postgraduate student of science and religion, Ben from Texas. Hey, Ben. Hey. And the uh, first timer to the pod, uh, helping to ensure Texas's dominance over this fan pod, as it uh, should be, of course, and always ensuring there's a quorum, parliamentarian extraordinaire who's just Austin weird enough, Amy from Texas. Welcome to the pod, Amy. Hey, y'all. And uh, last but certainly not least, uh, we land in the Southwest, coming to us from the city with the worst university in the country, and I know that for a fact, uh, but it's not his fault. Uh, he went to MIT, had a successful business career. Uh, somehow fizzing out, figuring out how to monetize physics, which is just mind-blowing. Uh, but anyway, uh, another of our liberal, liberal contributors, but the uh, one with the best voice, Doug from Arizona. Hey, Doug. Hello, everybody. All righty. So we'll uh, dive right into it. So if you're listening to this fan podcast, but you're not already a paid subscriber to The Dispatch, we hope you all visit thedispatch.com and at least sign up for the free content. Uh the Dispatch, uh, if you don't already know, is a center-right media organization that puts journalism over partisanship, prides itself in telling it, telling it like it sees it. Uh, of course, being the lawyer of the group, I just need to say here we are not affiliated with or endorsed by The Dispatch. Uh, we're just fans. So I want to go around the group and quickly see what each of you thought was maybe the best Dispatch article, uh, newsletter, podcast, or maybe what angered you the most from The Dispatch this week. Um, but just want to get your guys' take on that. So let me go to, let's see, how about you, Doug? What, uh, what was your, what was the best of the dispatch this week? Uh, well, I think today's with the snow, to be honest, I think it was very light and Rachel always does a great job. Needs, she needs more credit. <laughs> and what was that again? Say it again, Doug. Uh, Rachel's wrap up of the week with her picture of the snow, which I totally don't miss. She always provides a nice community enlightening uh, Saturday wrap up. Yeah, that's very good. Good one. All right. What about you, Jack? I think uh, our weekly uh, flagship for this um, Wednesday was um, quite informative. 
What was informative about it? I mean, I am just... I, I, I haven't been able to catch up uh, a whole lot on the actual trial because I've been busy with school and stuff, so it was just nice to hear uh, some of the stuff that was going on in the um, on Capitol Hill. Well, how dare you uh, do school? And um, But anyway, that's good. All right, all right. Like, like and then Amy, uh, again, welcome to the uh, fan pod. What, did, what was the best of the dispatch for you this week? I really enjoyed Jonah's latest remnant. He has Kevin Kosar on, and the title of it just, you know, automatically spoke to my soul. Congress bad, liquor good. <laughs> I, I like both I haven't of them. listened to that one yet. So. <laughs> Um, especially after today, and of course we're filming this on, or filming this, we're recording this on a, a, probably what is the last day of the impeachment trial. And I think uh, if Congress bad, liquor is good, is could be any better of a description, I, I, I can't imagine. So uh, Angie, what was your, uh, what was the best of the dispatch for you this week? Well, both the um, advisory opinions were interesting because I disagreed with them more than I ever had, but I still enjoy them. I just really love those guys and the way they interact in their different positions and stuff. All right. Fair enough. Ben, what about you? Oh, for me, it was super easy. It has to be Chris Starwalt's inaugural column called the Derp State. (laughs) And, uh, you know, and not just for how funny he is, but also his eventual conclusion that we need some major education reform, which is near and dear to my heart. Couldn't agree with that more. That's for sure. Uh, Alan, what about you? Um, Yeah, mine was the uh, second uh, Chris Starwalt's appearance on the suite because uh, uh, it was just the chemistry that him and Sarah had in that article. I could hear them going back and forth in my head. Yeah, and it sounded like they had a good report just reading it. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, Chris Starwalt's addition to the dispatch is, is huge. Just brings It actually kind of, to me, brings another person like Sarah to the group, a little less of the uh, ideological-minded, a little bit more in, in the weeds on the on the politics of it. But um, yeah. glad everybody's enjoying uh, Chris and his uh, addition to the dispatch. Yeah, those two come at it from two different angles, with Sarah having worked the campaign and Chris covering it. So it's interesting. Absolutely. And just briefly, and, and uh, like Angie, I like both AO's uh, advisory opinions. I like Wednesdays, probably for the same reason as Angie. Um, I just completely disagreed with a lot of what they had to say, but it was still enjoyable. So um, so anyway, so let's move straight into uh, the first segment. Um, and really, truly, I say first segment, but this, is, this week, is, it's all things impeachment. I mean, this is a historical moment in American history. What the fourth impeachment uh, in nearly 300 years of history? Of course, two of them coming within just a, a year of each other because of well, who's who, who was in the White House? Let's put it that way. So, anyway, let's go ahead and move to the first question. So, uh, speaking of Wednesday's advisory opinions, uh, you know, David and Sarah uh, had a pretty solid critique of the House managers in this case, essentially saying that they felt that the House managers were presenting a case that wasn't built on actually seeking and securing a conviction. Um, that, uh, if anything, all it did was prove the case to the whomever it had already been proven to. Um, I'm not sure I agree with that, but I'm curious what you guys think. Uh, Doug, what do you think? 
So I think that the house managers presented um, a compelling case um, of the facts and, and evidence that was present to almost every American in plain view and in plain sight that Donald Trump um, conceived of, inspired, planned for months and months, if not years, to delegitimize the electoral process. He had begun that even earlier. He consistently messaged that theme. He consistently messaged inciting and getting his followers up in arms. Literally speaking, they arrived in arms at the Capitol. He conducted meetings in his private residence at Trump Tower with key operatives of his family and other operatives in charge of Stop the Steal. He organized and spoke in front of that crowd. They illuminated that I believe he clearly met the standard of which there is none for impeachment in the constitutional sense of failing to uphold his oath of office to defend and protect the Constitution of the United States from all enemies, foreign and domestic. Clearly, the domestic enemies he encouraged. Clearly, the domestic enemies he did not stop. He clearly did not even stop when asked for his help to protect people under assault and siege during murderous intrusions. So I think the House managers were clear. I don't think that there is hardly anything that will change the partisanship aspect of this other than the courage that was shown by so far, five or six Republican senators and those in the House that voted for impeachment and those in the Senate that voted to dispense with the ridiculous concept of jurisdiction. So I think the House managers were compelling, articulate, succinct, vivid, clear, and on point. Thank you. Well, Doug, let me, uh, I'll, I'll push back a little bit. I'm going to put my Sarah Isger hat on, which on, on Discord, uh, my little title, Supreme Allied Commander, that's uh, because that was what she said was the, the greatest title of all time. So luckily Discord allowed me to have that many characters in my title. Um, so I'm going to put her hat on and, and argue back at you. Okay, Doug, but fine. So you were probably convic- convinced before the impeachment trial that uh, Trump should be convicted. So how... For anybody who wasn't convinced, but was, let's just say, hypothetically open to being convinced that he should be convicted, how did the House managers do that? Or did they did they adequately do that? Well, I was convinced because I saw the evidence occurring in front of my own eyes. So they merely recanted that, but more so they amplified and added to it clear scenes where the president was explicitly responsible for his language that resulted causatively in actions by his followers to go and storm the Capitol on his direct instruction. So they laid that out clearly. All right. So Amy, so let me, uh, let me move it to you. So do you, do you second Doug's motion here? Um, I, I believe that the House managers showed a political level of incitement. I am not a lawyer. I just hang out with you all all day. So in a criminal trial for incitement, I don't think that they would have been able to meet that what I understand is a very high bar. However, 
this is a political matter. Um, can we all repeat that again and again and again? It's a political matter. It always has been. That's what impeachment is. That's what an impeachment trial is. It's always going to be political. Did they meet incitement? The political definition? Yes. They always were going to. Could they have made a stronger case? Could they have included another dereliction of duty or um, violating his oath? And would that have made a stronger case? Absolutely. I think there should have been more articles of impeachment. And I think they should have been brought on the 7th of January. Well, hard hard to argue with that, at least from my perspective. But I'm curious, Ben, um, I, I kind of feel like maybe you, you agree, maybe not. What do you think? I mean, I, I didn't watch any of the House stuff, but my general opinion on this is that, um, you know, I think it's fairly, uh, I think you have to go with one or two theories about Donald Trump. Either he's a gigantic idiot or <laughs> he knows exactly what he's doing. And I tend to lean towards the latter. I think he knew exactly what he was doing. And I think the call that came out between him and McCarthy just recently proves that. I mean, he already, McCarthy was telling him what was going on, and Trump was still refusing to do anything about it. So um, as for the House case, I can't say. Like, I didn't watch it, but, you know, I think I think it meets – I think I'd agree with Amy. Well, you know, it's interesting because uh, what you're describing is the, uh, I coined this a long time ago. Um, I'm not unique in it, but I, I called it the George W. Bush philosophy of politics. And that's that you're either evil or stupid, but you're not both. And it just came back from, you know, here, George W. Bush was supposed to be this, you know, massive conspirator working with his oil buddies and whatever else in order to steal oil from Iraq. And then uh, in the same breath, it was, he was a, as dumb as a box of rocks and um, and I just don't, I agree with you. I don't, I don't think you're one or the other, uh, or excuse me, I think you are one or the other. You're not typically both. So, um, but it sounds like, I think what, what we're saying here is that maybe there's a problem with how this was charged, how the article impeachment was drafted up. You know, Amy had mentioned include dereliction of duty, include violating oath. Um, so Jack, I mean, what do you think? I mean, it was the problem here. If there was a problem, if you agree, there's a problem that the house managers cabined it too much to this legal quasi legal definition of incitement of violence, or um, do you think that was enough and the senators should have been compelled to vote that way anyway? Yeah. So I think that the articles were inherently flawed. I think that uh, house Democrats made a big mistake. Um, not, um, trying to, not reaching out to republicans to help uh to draft the articles of impeachment whether it be adam kissinger or liz cheney or any of the 10 that voted um to impeach him and it just and i think making it incitement of insurrection made it harder to prove and not working with republicans i think that was intentional you know like i think working with republicans would have possibly made it so we would have gotten uh, enough votes to uh convict and the, the the vote just happened it was a 57 to 43 
Um, meaning 43 senators failed to uphold their oath of office, but that's another topic. Um, but I just think that they should have gone for violation of oath because that's, he clearly did that. Like that's not debatable. And you could, you could say, well, I'm not going to vote to convict him because I don't think he meets the legal requirement of incitement. And you know, that case could definitely be made. So I think, but I don't think you can make a good argument whatsoever about him not meeting the, um, not meeting the standards of violating his oath because that's exactly what he did. And I think that even if you don't think he necessarily legally committed incitement, you should have voted to convict anyway because he clearly should never be in office again. Well, and that's look, that's where I kind of fall in this myself. I mean, that the problem I have with because you guys are essentially echoing, uh, or what you did, uh, Jack, is you're echoing kind of Sarah's view and, and David's view. My question back is what would have been the better alternative? And and my problem is is that I, you know, here, McConnell today or last night, it's in an email to the Republicans saying that, uh, you know, hey, it was bad and wrong, but I can't, um, I don't think that there's jurisdiction to convict. And he was the one that kept the trial from actually occurring while President Trump was still in office, this short little trial started on what Tuesday or Monday and lasted today could have been started, you know, three days after January 6th or a week after January 6th. It certainly could have been completed before the inauguration. But, uh, you know, the quote unquote Senate rules uh, and their vacation prevented that. And then uh, he comes in and says otherwise. Uh, you, add, you add to it that, you know, this legal requirement of of incitement and jurisdiction are all really, in my view, based on spurious and kind of obtuse views on on uh, impeachment, all kind of crafted to have excuses. Um, so I just kind of, in my view, I don't really see how adding one or two Republican House managers uh, and adding a few additional articles would have changed these 43 senators who were going to vote anyway. Uh, to acquit, how that would have changed anyone's mind. So anyway, that's my, Alan, where am I wrong on that? Um, I have a hard time uh, seeing where you're wrong, I guess. Uh, so it was 57, two can, so seven Republicans, uh, two can fake, it's 57, 43, it was 57, uh, okay. yeah, 57 against, wow, seven. I, I guess uh, that was about what I I don't see Wrong. I guess I would say looking back on the most damning part of the indictment was the response rather the lack of response from Trump. You know, once the uh, riot had occurred, or yeah, once the invasion of the Capitol, or whatever you want to call it, had occurred. That to me was the most damning part when uh, having to beg him to do something. I, I, you know, I think you're pointing out, Alan, a, a significant weakness in the case and that there was a, I think everybody was like, well, wait a minute. It it, it appeared based off of Ben Sass and other reporting that he either delighted in what was going on or told, you know, aides were very confused as to how he was, uh, you know, not part of the process, not contributing yet. There was really no evidence, direct evidence that was presented of that. There was just, you know, in the law here, say this isn't a legal proceeding, but still. Um, where that was that was the stuff that all of us didn't actually see with our own eyes. We're having to believe from other people, and they didn't really close that gap. So, 
I don't know. Is that kind of what you're talking about, Alan? Is that, would that be, would that have been a little bit more successful of you if the house manager had pursued that more than anything? Uh, I think that's the, well, I, I think that's the most, I mean, did we know from the, you know, who called then the National Guard eventually might have, so it wasn't Trump. I mean, which, okay, I've heard conflicting things in that, but yeah, of course, they would have needed witnesses, and apparently that was torpedoed. But you can also make the argument that the Democrats didn't want to either. They would rather have had this campaign issue for 2022 have predictions. Well, it's interesting you say this. So, so Angie, kind of rounding it out, uh, this this question with you, I mean, um, I, I think, uh, you know, as, as a Democrat, how do you feel about that? It's, let's just say, Angie, it's true that uh, that was the Democrat strategy, was that you're not going to get the conviction, you know, so instead of really trying to you know, dive into the evidence and get this, you know, additional testimony. The goal was more to, uh, you know, I guess ad- advance the party's goals politically uh, by having a 16 hour, you know, closing argument of the evidence we'd all seen. Is that, was that a, was that a good thing, a bad thing for the country? I mean, especially in light of the fact, that, again, they weren't going to get conviction anyway. So why not do that? Um, I'm a little conflicted here because I would prefer to believe that it wasn't that they want to use it for the midterms. I really don't like that idea, um, even though it's probably going to work. I think there was a lot of things going on, and I'm not clear yet who was doing what. I think Raskin really wanted to call witnesses, and he was torpedoed because they were torpedoed. They didn't know he was even going to bring it up. Um, I don't know what's good. For, I think that if we could have gotten some conservative help, it would have been nice for people like us, but I don't know that it would have made any difference for the people who don't like those people already, and they would just put them in the group of, you're all traitors. So I don't know if that would help or not, as far as if we're looking to change minds. Right, I mean, so, so kind of, oh, go ahead, sorry. Um, I mean, yeah, maybe we can second guess it, I guess, all the time. And I also, as far as why it was only single, I wonder if they got a lot of flack over the last one for having too much and too much confusing stuff. And they maybe wanted to simplify on the one thing they knew they could prove and that wouldn't confuse people. That's just my opinion. I have no idea. I don't know what they're doing. <laughs> well, well, I guess we'll find out here as uh, as history moves forward, as it always does. So. But, but Angie, let me uh, stick with you, and we'll kind of move to the next uh, kind of question here. And it, it's kind of a two-parter. So, you know, there was, there was, you know, if you put your objective, I'm I'm a U.S. senator hat on. So um, you've got questions that you want to submit to the House managers. Either one, what would those questions be? You know, if you had the opportunity, would they be one? Would they be direct to the House managers or Trump's defense? And then. What exactly would you ask? And then if uh, you want instead maybe to say, since we had about, what, an hour period where we actually thought we were going to have witnesses called, (laughs) um, if you could have subpoenaed a witness to testify, who would you have subpoenaed and what would you have asked them? I'll do the second part first because I'm more clear where I stand on that one. Um, It would have to be somebody who was reliable and not in the crazy side of anybody's side. Um, I think any, anybody who's a sane political person who would have 
you know, verifiable information on things that went wrong and what he did or didn't do. I would have been interested in this whole thing about the phone call with McCarthy, who is obviously not a happy man. He seems to be being torn in two here. Um, I wish even we could have heard from maybe some who were there, protesters and otherwise, for eyewitness accounts, even though we saw some. We didn't really see a lot. There's a lot of things. And, you know, and I might have asked them if I'd had the opportunity to tell me why they decided not to call the witnesses to go back to the first part. Just because I want to know why. Instead of all the, you know, everything on Twitter is speculating. And it's like, I just hate the speculation anymore. It's like, could we just, I don't care what the answer is, but could we just find out what's really going on? Well, I, you know, that's an impossible standard, Angie. How dare you uh, ask these uh, representatives of the people to actually treat us all with truth and uh, tell us what they're actually doing and not just be, you know, moving part of the partisan political motives ahead. Because I'm an eternal optimist. That's why. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, that's, I think kind of that's bare bones, what we should probably all expect. But, uh, but anyway, uh, Ben, what do you think? I mean, you know, again, objective Senator hat on, you could ask the defense, you could ask uh, the House managers any question. What would it be? Who would you ask it to? Or, and whatever, um, would you, if you had someone you wanted to subpoena, you know, who specifically would you subpoena to testify? And what would you, I'm curious what you'd actually ask them. What would be your question if you're that senator asking that person you've subpoenaed? Well, uh, one thing that just came to mind was um, if Trump's prior behavior uh, counts as a sort of a character witness against him i guess like him constantly and intentionally making people angry for his own purposes if that would buttress the case for intentional incitement that i mentioned earlier um as for calling a witness uh this may not be my objective senator hat but i would have loved to see the pig and goat guy subpoena <laughs> and uh but more seriously um when i did i did see the video of the the rioters that was up on david's column and what really struck me there was they got a lot of video of the rioters actually explaining what they thought they were doing including one who said we're just doing what your boss, Trump, told us to. And I wonder if they could have subpoenaed just some regular people who would have actually got up there and said that. Like, that's what I thought he said, you know? You know, I think it's a good point. I mean, I, I agree with you. I would have loved to have, you know, they had people, uh, I think it was that, uh, you know, for us Texans here, the, the woman that was a real estate agent from Texas who admitted many times that she just thought she was doing what Trump had called her to do. But as a lawyer, I would say what you're admitting to doing is a crime. You just you're putting it on somebody else and you're doing it many, many times. So you know, all of these individuals that were involved, you know, calling them in to talk about what did you really, what was your mindset, so on and so forth, uh, would have been asking them to, you know, make statements against their own interests, they would have pled the fifth and unless they had some kind of immunity and, and then you add all sorts of quirks and issues and, and everything related to it. But I think it's, I, I still think it's a good point though. I mean, what did these people actually think? 
not just what the you know, house managers were saying that they thought or what they were putting up on television. Um, you know, Doug, are you, are you persuaded with that? Would that have been, you know, uh, you, you would have wanted to subpoena to testify? Um, or do you have, I have a different, uh, I do have a different perspective here. Um, so I would, uh, subpoena a gentleman named Charles W. Herbster, who was in attendance at a meeting of the private residence in Trump International Hotel. Those attendants confirmed by Mr. Herbster would go under oath and be asked about the conversations of Donald Trump, Eric Trump, Michael Flynn, Peter Navarro, Corey Lewandowski, Trump Deputy Campaign Manager David Bossy, Adam Piper, Executive Director of the Republican Attorney General's Association, United States Senator Tommy Tuberville. I would ask him, in addition, the other people attending were supposedly Rudy Giuliani, Kimberly Guilfoyle, Michael Lindell, Daniel Beck, and unnamed two U.S. other senators. I would question Mr. Herbster about those conversations related to the upcoming uh, insurrection that occurred two days later following that meeting in the Trump private residence. I would ask him about any and all phone calls and conversations that he was personally aware of between the president and the people in that war council. That's who I would put under, under deposition. You know, I, what's interesting about this, Doug, is you're, and I hadn't, I mean, we haven't all had a lot of time to think about this, right? Cause this whole notion that witnesses are even possible was not something like, I don't know, four hours ago, that was a reality. So, um, but just hearing you talk about that, you know, as, 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 as effective as the house re- or the Senate Republicans have, been at convincing, you know, all of the people watching Fox News or OANN or anything else that this is somehow a legal proceeding where due process is required and uh, this is unfair and so on and so forth. What you just mentioned, Doug, was asking somebody to come in and basically give a bunch of testimony related to hearsay. And I could say that in a deposition, that would have been perfectly fine and appropriate, but none of it would have ever gotten into a trial if this was an actual trial in a criminal court. Um, and I just see, as well, much as I agree with But he, he actually was present. Right. But, but without getting into the legal weeds on hearsay, it's not so much whether you're present. Uh, hearsay is based on the notion that uh, you know, statements that are taken under oath, uh, you have to be able to cross-examine the individuals that make those statements. So you can't, you, when you t- testify about what somebody else said, uh, there's no ability to cross-examine what that other person said at that time. Or uh, So uh, there's only certain types of exceptions to that. For instance, if Trump had said the statements himself, it's a statement against interest, so it's an exception to the hearsay rule. But, the, but this is, again, just in this little blurb here that I'm saying is exactly what would have occurred. We would have had a you know, depositions. We would have had these people testifying, talking about what's happening at these events. You would have had Republican and, or excuse me, at least Trump's defense lawyer saying, oh, this is unfair. It's not due process. It's just hearsay evidence. And it would have continued down this spiral of trying to act like this is somehow a criminal trial and not an impeachment trial. So, I mean, Jack, I mean, what do you think? I mean, from your perspective, is is this what you'd want to have? To, who would you want to have come and testify? What would you ask? Or I guess at least what would you vet the House managers and Trump's defense team? Yeah. So um, first of all, I didn't really get to touch on this. So I just wanted to um, say that 
uh, Raskin. That's his name, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, Senator Representative Raskin, sorry. Um, he, I, I'm very impressed by him, as, obviously, as a, someone who's right-leaning. Uh, and obviously we'll have disagreements with him on policy from the time to time. I, he does after this, he has earned my respect. He strikes me as a good man who legitimately wanted a conviction, uh, in contrast to some who I'm sure were more politically motivated. Um, and I really wish they would have called witnesses. I think that could have kind of changed the ball game. And I know this wouldn't have happened. And so I'm not putting my objective U.S. Senator cap on like um, (laughs) um, some of you were, but I think Mike Pence honestly could have been used on both um, from both teams. um, And I would have liked to see him from the prosecution side of things. I agree with that. Yeah. His experience with it all. And he was kind of, he had a lot of um, pressure uh, on that day and on, on that day specifically, he did the right thing. Um, and so I think his perspective would have been interesting to hear. And obviously his relationship with Donald Trump got a lot more rocky after that. Um, and so I think that would have almost been kind of convincing to many Republicans if Mike Pence had made his case. Uh, the former vice president under Donald Trump made his case to convict well jack and i'm gonna push back on it and you respond okay so um let's just go you know if we assume let's take all the legal formalities away and assume that the vice president can come up and and provide the testimony that he agrees to do it and he's up there on the stand um what about the history of donald trump and mike pence in the last four years would convince you that he's going to get up there and say something that actually could sway a Republican senator to go the other way. Oh, well, I don't think he would agree to it. <laughs> this is well, well, let's, well, let's take that away, though. Let's say he agrees to it. He's on the right. stand now. You are the senator from Kentucky, mm-hmm. and I'm going to put you in a place of Rand Paul. So you are the senator of Kentucky, and now you're asking him the questions. He's up there, and you're asking him to tell you what happened on that day or whatever questions you want to ask. Do you think he'd actually throw Trump under the bus? Answer the questions that we'd all hope he'd answer. Well, if he actually, I feel like Mike Pence is the kind of guy, if he agreed to be a witness for the prosecution, then yes, I feel like he would throw Trump under the bus, but I don't think he would agree to be a witness and therefore wouldn't agree to throw Trump under the bus because I think he's kind of, he is a standoffish guy most of the time except for on that day. And so it's really hard to predict him because when it comes to the insurrection, he's kind of an enigma. Um, but I, I I wouldn't expect him necessarily to ever actually directly throw Trump under the bus, but I wouldn't consider it impossible because he seems pretty angry at him. Well, I just, I mean, to me personally, I just think this is pretty poignant because we have a lot of people, myself included, uh, very frustrated right now with the House managers not calling witnesses, especially after they voted to call witnesses and then recanted on it. Um, but I think it's important that everybody with clear eyes moving forward actually sit down and go, well, who would they have called? Who would have actually testified? What would they have actually said? I mean, I, I'm me personally, I just I'm baffled by the thought that there's anybody that the defense team that would, could call. 
that would help them. But then I start just, you know, Mike, you know, Mike Pence is a good example. Uh, somebody who probably wouldn't have shown up. Okay, so who are we moving to next? Who, who would we call? What would they say? And could they potentially harm the house manager's case? I don't know. Alan, what do you think? Is there who specifically do you think we could have called? Um, what would you ask them? Was there that one Republican uh, representative who uh, you know was supposedly you know had heard my you know Kevin McCarthy you know on that phone call wasn't that the case? I mean I was reading this in our actual Discord chat that that had occurred I forget it was a yeah, you know, Herrera. yeah, Herrera. yeah that you know they could have called her. Right. Well, I, I mean, okay. I, let me just, let me, let me, uh, I'm, okay. I'm going to make this more difficult on you, Alan. It's unfair totally what I'm doing, but uh, she would have called him probably huge to what she wrote or what she reported in there. Right. So she would have said exactly what the reporting said she would have said. So just from the notion of, okay, that's great. That's nice. But we already got what she said. Like who else, who else could we have called in here? Who else could the house of managers had said, you know, they didn't make a, a reporting in the press. They weren't caught on video or they didn't they didn't go on Fox or CNN or whatever and, and say what was going on. This is this other person with this relevant information that we don't already know. Who is that person? Mm. I want to joke Kevin McCarthy, but uh, <laughs> that would have been interesting. I think Meadows would have been interesting. Yeah. Why is, that, why is that, Angie? Why would Meadows have been interesting? Well, because they're... I'm just going by what I've read, but it seems like um, he knows a lot about what went on and he was around at all this time on how Trump was behaving and stuff. And I don't know, you know, he's always been a Trump fan, but I don't know. That's the problem with all these people. You don't know what they're actually going to say. I mean, how long have they been saying things they don't actually believe? I It just gets so confusing. How do you find somebody that isn't polarized one direction or the other? That that could be, you know, not partisan, objective, and actually tell what happened regardless of how they felt about it, I guess. Is my- well, point of order, Amy, uh, what's your opinion on all this? <laughs> I'm never going to live that down, am I? Nope. Uh, okay, accepted. Moving on. It is the opinion of the body that... Um, I think that calling Herrera Butler from Washington, um, even though she was going to submit facts already in evidence, if I can borrow one of your legal eagle terms, is that she was both a witness to the phone call, but also a witness to the events that were the inciting events prior to January 6th, both in her district Um, which is the Washington 3rd District, I believe. Yes. And I'm sorry, sidebar, I worked for six years in Washington politics as one of my many hats that I once wore. Um, Washington State. I think calling her would have added a level that probably could only have been surpassed by actually subpoenaing McCarthy or calling Liz Cheney. Well, see, you're, you're in my so my view, uh, and this is directly you're, you're highlighting it, Amy. And I'm going to put it back to you here in a minute. But my view is that this the speculation of all these you know congressmen, these these actual politicians, and 
and whether or not we want to subpoena them, it would have just been a circus. But some, for someone who has come who has actually worked for these individuals, um, that's where I think, that's where me as, as a lawyer wanting to prove the case, you know, any testimony from a politician is just going to be viewed by the public as skewed one way or the other because of the R or the D next to their name. But the staffers don't necessarily uh, qualify there. They weren't elected individuals. They're employees doing a job. And when Ben Sass reports that there's aides that have reported him or people close to the situation that said Donald Trump was running around uh, wondering why everybody was uh, not as thrilled as he was. And then other reporting says the same thing. There's aides. That's where I would focus. I'd want to go, what are, who are these aides? Who, who around Donald Trump that day that's not an elected official, that's not Mark Meadows, is in the chief of staff? that could possibly have been the leaker in that situation. Why don't we testify those individuals? What do you think? Well, and that's an excellent point. I do think that having individual staffers called and my original answer to the original question was that I would have liked to have heard from Raffensperger and any election officials from the states of Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Arizona. I would have wanted them to be subpoenaed and to give play-by-play, this is what occurred, these are the phone calls, this is what we personally are dealing with in these states because of the rhetoric. And I'm sorry, I'm just going to go off topic just briefly for a minute. That It came up earlier. One thing that I would have liked the impeachment managers to have done better, I think they did a fantastic job almost without exception. But I wish that they had pushed back harder and repeatedly on this comment by the president's defenders, the former president's defenders, that he concluded his speech by saying peacefully and patriotically. That was one line, a throwaway line, on January 6th. The incitement occurred before January 6th, and I think that would have defeated, by calling in Raffensperger, by calling in all the other election officials from the other states, that would have defeated this, frankly, ridiculous argument that the incitement was only on the 6th, and because the president said peaceful, and because the re- the rally riots insurrection was pre-planned therefore the president couldn't have incited it it would have blown it out of the water would it have mattered probably not but that's my cynicism yeah i mean isn't isn't it isn't it true that that a lot of the movers and shakers that were in the crowd like literally encouraging the crowd to become more riotous wasn't it the fact that they were already there during Trump's speech at the Capitol? Are you saying like as an as an evidence that he was that this had started earlier than that day? Just the fact that they were already there? Is that what you're saying? No, I think I, I think I've heard that that a lot of those guys were already there uh, while Trump was giving his speech, and they were already preparing, like. Yeah, there's a group of them supposedly that had planned it and were there regardless of the rally. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, there yeah. was. Yeah, there was like the Proud Boy contingency and the far right groups. Yeah, they were 
I think they also incited the whole thing that it got so out of hand, actually. And so they were going to do that regardless of what Trump said from the White House. But that fits in what Amy was saying, is that obviously this was building up for a long time. Yeah, I mean, look, the that was kind of at the heart of the criticism that Sarah was giving in advisory opinions, was that she was saying, look, if you're trying to... Uh, you know, convict him of inciting this insurrection. Why are you back in May of 2020 talking about what he said there? All the senators are going to support him and say, well, I supported him then, so I'm having to convict myself. Like it's, that, that doesn't like understand, that doesn't see the force through the trees. The, the point of the House manager, what I thought was incredibly effective, was that they laid out this very detailed case, this very logical case of how this had, this has been brewing and this has been planned for a long time they were essentially improving intent you know uh that this was premeditated this wasn't a random act on january 6th and speaking to all that so even if you know uh, donald trump even if we can go ahead and close our eyes and our ears and assume that uh, on january 6th he was just giving a campaign stump speech and didn't intend to incite the the crowd on that day that everything leading up to that point wasn't a, an effort to get everybody there and get everybody uh, uh, riled up so that if they couldn't have Pence unconstitutionally step in and choose the next president, uh, they could storm the White House. So, and by the way, I'll say this with Amy too. I, I like the idea of calling Raffensperger because, um, it, it, you know, I don't know if it's reported as much, but apparently Lindsey Graham had tried to call Raffensperger uh, sometime in November to get him to switch votes. Yeah. Uh, and that would have been hilarious to see uh, that testimony come out with uh, Lindsey Graham sitting in the uh, crowd. I just read that's one of the things they were pursuing in Georgia, the Lindsey Graham call. I don't understand why anyone takes that guy seriously. I haven't taken him seriously for at least 10 years. <laughs> I always kind of liked him. I just I don't like what happened. But uh, Just to, to butt in here briefly... Uh, the the trial has concluded. The vote has been held. Schumer spoke. Um, I was actually paying attention to the podcast, so I did not hear Schumer. And I have not actually heard most of what McConnell has said. But he is making the case that Trump is absolutely guilty of incitement and dereliction of duty, but that the Senate has no ability to convict a private citizen. That's what McConnell's hanging his hat on. Which they already decided they had jurisdiction, so it's kind of not a good argument to make so i'm sorry are you saying that this is all political showmanship <gasps> no shocking i never would have guessed i am shocked to find politics in washington i have Whoa. cracked the code <laughs> and, and remember mcconnell as senate majority leader at the time could have summoned everybody back that was uh, apparently on vacation in early january uh, to have this trial at the time. So, you know, even you if... There's no reason for not doing that besides the rules thing. I don't know what it was, but yeah. Isn't a part of that argument the argument that Trump, as a private citizen, can be tried in a regular court? Yes. I mean, sure, part of the argument. But that's never changed, though. I mean, even as president of the United States, he could be tried in a regular court. I mean, a lot of the... Uh, you know, rules against going after a president have been based off of just, you know, Department of Justice rules, which kind of makes sense when you understand the Department of Justice, you know, operates at the behest of the president of the United States. So 
um, this notion that they're not going to go after their boss kind of makes a lot of sense. But, um, but yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, that's true. A lot of, well, we can go to the courts. We can pursue it that way. Um, but I don't know. I, I, what do you think, Doug? Is that what the founders intended? Just go to the courts? I don't think so at all. I mean, why even talk about impeachment if that was the issue? Yeah, why even have this separate process, right? If you could just go to the courts, just go to them and let them resolve it. Why have impeachment in the first place? I don't know. What do you think? Because they don't want their name attached to it. That's why. Kevin, I have one more question. Sure, yeah. Comment about the protesters. Of all the ones I've read about what they've said or what their attorneys are now saying and stuff, I think a lot of them really believe that they weren't breaking the law because they thought Trump was going to take care of all this and they'd be fine. So, and I guess that's them having bad judgment at the same time. He was misleading them too about this whole thing that, you know, because he made it sound like this is your duty. You're a patriot. You have to go do this. And I think a lot of them honestly thought they weren't going to get in trouble. Look at the ones that just walked away from it. Like, okay. Oh, I I don't know. What do you guys think? I agree completely. I mean, what the sad part of all this is that 50, well, 43 senators just made sure that the ringleader gets away. Um, But all of the people that were duped uh, into believing a bunch of lies in order to, you know, make sure Donald Trump, of all people, remains in power, um, they're going to serve lots of time and they're going to, you know, their lives are over, essentially. You think um, they'd be really mad at him, huh? They probably are now. They probably are now. But I can tell you this. If they were subpoenaed to testify, their lawyers would tell them to plead the fifth. Um, which, you know, getting on the side of it, as you, you can assume if, if they plead the fifth, that what they would have said would have been inferred against the, de, the, the person that they were making comments about. But regular people don't know that and don't care. So um, the reality of it is they were never going to get subpoenaed to testify in it as well. But I agree with you, Angie. I mean, it's just, they truly believed it. I I, I know people, I know people in my personal life that still believe it, that uh, this was, the whole thing was a hoax and stolen and, you know, Biden's not a legitimate president. So we have uh, breaking news, breaking news. The expected Republican senators you would have expected to have voted for conviction. Toomey, Sass, Romney, Murkowski, Collins, the new one, Cassidy, but one additional Republican. Without peeking, do you know who it is? I know who it is, but I'm not going to. You peeked. Has anybody not looked it up that wants to venture a guess? I mean, Amy just posted it on the Discord. So. Oh, Senator Burr. Senator Burr was the only senator who voted no on the first two issues of constitutionality and witnesses, but in the end voted yes to convict. So, yay for, for being open-minded. Yeah, good on him, good on him. Good on him, really. Well, yes, I agree. I just, the hard part is, is that the evidence we all that, again i can't that's i was thinking about that earlier this week i'm like this is look this is a fourth impeachment and i don't care if you're a historian or not just look at the last impeachment uh look at clinton's impeachment for all of us but jack uh maybe who are alive for that or at least <laughs> old enough to remember it um you know were we all witnesses to the evidence that support the charge in those cases no 
So this is you know, millions of people that actually got to see what they were talking about. And they still stood up in the face of all of that and decided to uh, find a way to squirm their way out of it. So, but, you know, just in the interest of time, let's let's look at this. And this is actually kind of relevant to anyway, what we're talking about. I mean, from on Tuesday's The Morning Dispatch, uh, the uh, the writers there asked, would a conviction, which we now know didn't occur, but let's just say it occurred. So would a conviction and Trump being barred from holding future office loosen Trumpism's grip on the GOP or strengthen it? And what is the best case scenario for the Republican Party or for the country? And I guess I'll just edit that a little and say, well, now that he, he knows that he wasn't convicted, he's not barred from future office. Does that strengthen his grip over the trio? Does he actually come out of this stronger than before? I don't know. I'm curious. What do you think, Jack? I don't think he comes out stronger um, than before. Um, and I think the whole incitement did make him weaker. Um, because I think if you voted to impeach him before that, you don't get seven Republicans. Um, so yeah, I do think he is a little weaker, but I think it's really scary that he can still hold office. And I think that makes it possible now that he runs in the 2024 primary and gets the nomination, which frightens me. Um, and that will be my first presidential election. And if he um, is the Republican again, I'm either not voting for either of the two major parties or voting for the Democrat, because that's terrifying. Well, Angie, what do you think? I was just going to say, I don't think it made him stronger. I think he, it might be a little bit weaker, but probably not enough that it makes a big difference. I think it made him stronger. Absolutely. It, why, is that, uh, why is that the case, Doug? Because it validated his ability to be a leader, and it validated that there's no strength of contra- counter leadership in the GOP to stand up to him. To wit, uh, Lindsey Graham is shuttling down to talk about the future of the GOP right now with Donald Trump. So I think he's validated. I think it verified that he controls 70 million people, and I think he's going to be either a kingmaker or the king of the GOP for the next uh, four to eight years. Or well, I, I don't know. I mean, uh, Doug, let me push back on you. Does Biden control your vote? Biden is not a megalomaniac persona. Trump I know, but, did, but does he control your vote? No. You voted for him, right? I did. So why are we assuming that the 74, whatever the number is, the 74 million Trump voters uh, are controlled by Trump? Because, well... Answer that. I know at least my people who believe that the reason Trump has been on all this time is because the military was getting ready to overthrow the government to hand it back control to him. <laughs> that, I mean, now that's about 74 million, but there is a certain percentage of that 74 million. I think in those terms. Right. And look, I, I'm not going to disagree with you. The fact that the, so many Republicans have decided that conspiracy theories are, are more important than fact. But, you know, if, if the next Q drop that drops says that, oh, you know, this whole time it wasn't about that storm. The storm was really 43 votes for against conviction. You know, I, it'd be even hard for most of the uh, conspiracy theorists to follow. But I guess I, what I'm trying to push back on is the notion that 
you know, this has shown leadership or, or something. This was kind of actually absent Trump. I don't, I don't see how necessarily you could look at this and see leadership whatsoever. Um, Doug, what do you we, think? Well, leadership in the end is about action that is effective. If you're not effective at causation of action by your leadership skills your or your words, which is very rare, Trump is one, Winston Churchill, Abraham Lincoln, those are very far and few between. But actions and specifically consistent actions uh, define what you do. And this is why I hope that Ben Sass really learns more how to be that kind of influential leader and not just be the poster boy for a leader wannabe. I mean, you know, every he's likable. He has a lot of good things that I like, but I don't think he's anywhere near able to stand up to Donald Trump. So I haven't seen that person yet in the Republican Party. And the only reason Biden did it is essentially he kind of outgravitased him somewhat ignored him and spoke about different stuff, but very few people are going to be able to do that. So I think the Republicans have a very hard challenge to bring forward a leader because I think it's going to be still the internecine war between moral conservatisms, business conservatisms, and the GQP part of the party. So I think it's a hard road, and I think he still holds the predominant amount of upper hand cards. I can't wait to see any polls to see. I I still think some people have changed their mind. Maybe not enough to make the change we want, but I don't think it's going to be as easy this time. I don't know. Ben, what do you think? Well, I think the specific question of whether or not he could run again is the question we're talking about. And that really depends on whether or not you think Trump would be a more powerful figure behind the scenes as a kingmaker or as someone who is potentially a candidate again. And I personally think that much of Trump's mystique was him being the president and sort of the candidate and a winner. Uh, So he, he, already lost a lot of that mystique just by losing the election and to the conspiracy theorists being not in office anymore. Um, So the question of whether or not the conviction would have loosened his grip on the party, I think absolutely it would have loosened his grip on the party because at that point, everyone would have realized that this thing is over for real now. And with him kind of out there, I mean, you're going to get, maybe it's not going to be a majority, but you're going to get a significant percentage of people who are going to want him to run again in 2024. And that gives him power for the same reason that the Clintons had power for all those years in the Democratic Party. They expected Hillary to be president one day. Well, I guess my my pushback on that Ben would be that what you're you're separating Trump from Trumpism, and and I don't think that you know everybody's talking about these senators being afraid of Trump. I, I don't personally think they're afraid of Trump. I think they're afraid of their constituents, the people that actually put them in power, and their constituents are the ones that are, you know are are supporting Trump. So 
you know, maybe he would not, you know, conviction would not have allowed him to, you know, run for office. But uh, again, the, the, the argument is though, that that would that have, you know, emboldened his followers and, and strengthened their ability to control the Mike Lees and the Ted Cruz's and the Josh Hawley's, you know, people that are, you know, actual, you know, Ivy league trained lawyers and know better than all of this yet have beclowned themselves over the last several months, you know, pursuing all of these, you know, kind of crazy claims that they are. I mean, isn't it Trumpism that would have been strengthened one way or the other? Maybe I don't, I don't separate Trump from Trumpism. Uh, I think it's a personality cult and that, um, yeah, those other guys are afraid of the constituents, but once Trump is off the scene and I frankly don't think he's interested in, in anything where, you know, he's not in charge of it. Right. So if he can run again, he might remain involved in politics. Whereas if he had been convicted, I don't think he would have been interested in it. He might've started a TV show or something. He might anyway, but I really think, so for example, in, in 2012, there was a big debate among grassroots conservatives between the Gingrich people and the Santorum people, and it got really nasty. But four years later, in 2016, all that was gone, right? So because neither of those guys were running again, and I, I just I don't think that Trumpism is an actual intellectual current of ideas that will stick around after the man is out of the picture. Well, I'll say real quick, both of those individuals came out and they supported Trump. But Amy, what did you have to say? What do you think? Well, just to push back on the, the latest point that was just made is that in my experience, those, the Gingrich versus Santorum sides did not disappear. We had a serious split among the conservatives in Washington during the caucus process because the people that both both of those groups wanted to support Cruz, not Trump, but the people that had supported Gingrich didn't want to deal with the Santorum people and the Santorum people didn't want to deal with the Gingrich people and a lot of the Bush people or Romney people, but they had been Bush originally and kind of wanted to support Bush again, didn't want to deal with either one of them. So yes, it was a personality cult, but they didn't just disappear when those guys weren't candidates. The issues that they were arguing about remained relevant and the, the interaction between their supporting groups remained a serious problem. At least in my experience, I understand that that is that is not actual data. That's just anecdote. Um, if I if I may have a second, though, I would like to point out that what we're talking about just goes right back to what our dear leader Jonah Goldberg says: in that the parties are broken, um, and you see this with the fact that how many state parties have censured members of Congress now, which would have been unheard of even 10 years ago unless you know they'd been caught in bed with a dead girl or a live boy that was the old saw that we used to talk about in politics um but that you have all these censure votes 
And you had members of the Republican caucus in the House basically calling for Liz Cheney's head. But then when they had a secret ballot vote where nobody was going to be held to exactly how they voted, she got 146 votes to confirm her as part of leadership. The parties are fractured. They're deeply fractured. I was on the board of the Washington State Republican Party Executive Committee. I was the most hated person in that room, not because I'm a progressive Democrat or even because I'm a Southerner butting in on Pacific Northwest politics, but because I refused to support Trump. They tried to censure me after I left, and it only failed because someone pointed out that they didn't really have standing to censure someone who was no longer a member of the Washington State Republican Party. I I have a question for you guys regarding, like, the people who want to be president, like Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz and stuff, why wouldn't it have been their advantage to get rid of Trump? Why didn't they what? Why wouldn't it have been to their advantage to get rid of Trump so that it would be easier for them to run? Well, that's, again, that goes back to the loyalty of the constituents to Trump. I mean, in Cruz's position, uh, he... So there was, there was a split in the Republican... I understand what Amy is saying. There was definitely a split in the Republican Party prior to Trump. And this is not going to go away. My concern is that I think Trump sort of... Um, he, he sort of blew that whole dynamic up and postponed it in a sense. And, you know, Cruz was set to win in 2016 if Trump hadn't uh, come into that race. I mean, I think he definitely would have won that primary if Trump was not there. And that was because the Gingrich and Santorum factions had united behind Cruz. And the more establishment-style candidates like Jeb and later sort of Rubio tried to come into that track, they kind of fizzled out. Like, I don't know that Jeb ever got over 10% uh, in the national polling. So I guess going forward, my concern with Trump was that he not turn the divisions in the Republican Party into something that's a personality cult instead of a, instead of a, a conflict over actual ideas and policy goals. Um, so I guess I guess we, maybe we've gotten a little off track. I don't know. Maybe. Well, no. I mean, I'll say this. Look, Ben, I, I actually agree with you. I mean, like that's the thing about Trump that I think I despise the most is that he's turned politics into the most base form of politics: the X's and O's, the R's versus D's. He's not ideological driven. He's not a conservative. He wasn't even a Republican until like five minutes before he decided to run for president. Um, he doesn't have a set of principles or values or character or any of those other kinds of things that we used to actually care about our politicians. And by the way, they used to actually, even if they didn't have any of those things, they used to act like they had them. I and he doesn't even do that. So, but he's just become this example of we just want to beat the other side like. When my Cubs, you know, show up to play the Cardinals, I, I don't care what the views of the Cardinals are. I don't care whether or not they tried really hard in the prior game. I just want the Cubs to beat them, whatever the score happens to be. 
but politics is more than just a sports score, and that's that's what he's reduced it to. So I don't know. I just think it's a uh, when it comes to whether or not you know he's you know, his grip on the Republican Party or what's the best case. I mean, the best case scenario for the Republican Party is that he was convicted, so that he would go away at some point and not be able to run for for political office. And certainly that would have been for the country. Um, and that way you'd have to be, be clown yourself as a supporter guy that um, is, is so uh, disliked and, and, and so by on a bipartisan fashion had been rejected that uh, he, he can't even run for dog catcher anymore. But I guess he can. But let me move this to, I mean, this is kind of right into kind of our last segment. And that's, and this is really, this is based on, you know, one, uh, Jonah Goldberg's Wednesday G file, which, um, you know, the G file for me personally is one of the things I've followed Jonah for the longest time. Um, his Friday G file, of course, being epically better always. Um, but anyway, uh, the question is, you know, what is statesmanship? I mean, how should politicians in a republic, not a democracy, you know, how should politicians balance their their leadership when they're actually representing constituents? I mean, when should they fight for policy victories based on what they actually believe versus, you know, what their constituents want. I mean, when is it, when is it institution and when is it just pure political vote getting? Uh, Jack, what do you think? Okay, so this is something, and, you know, maybe I'm young, so this make, gives me a more, I guess, I'd hate to say it, extreme view on things, but I honestly think, this sounds very authoritarian of me, that if you run for political office and you get elected to that political office and you run saying, I'm going to vote for, well, if you run on a platform that you actually, or things you actually believe in, and you go in there and you vote on those platforms and you just give them an idea of what you believe, what your ideology is, then I think you vote your conscience. The people vote who represents them and those people who represent them vote for the laws based on what they think is best because they're the uh you know the officials who were elected and ideally experienced who know what they're doing in contrast to people who are just voting out of fear and not voting their conscience but maybe that's just me no, I think that's a, the, one of the primary purposes of a republic is that most people just don't have the time to know what's going on in the government, and they shouldn't be forced to. I mean, they should be out living their lives. That's part of being a free American. So, you know, in a sense, we hire these people to go and do a job and know what they're talking about, and we have to trust them to do a good job, and that's where the character issues come in, I guess. Doug? Well, I mean, I, I, I think it's a question of uh, the judgment required for the situation at hand. Um, I have always been, I was trained to be what we call a situational leader, situational manager. Uh, different styles and different decision-making processes come out based on the situation you're in. So in military terms, people would know this as situational assessment. In chess, it's reading the board. Where are the pieces? Um, so a lot of it really does depend on the skill of the leader, the statesman, the politician, 
to be all of those things has to say, what is the real situation? And then what is my true assessment of what my constituents want? But then what is, to override that, what is it that I see as the benefits that brings a value to serving needs that maybe are poorly articulated by my constituents? In other words, one reason we're sending you to Washington is to understand things that we don't have time to understand that we are unaware of. Most things that people need, you actually have no clue that you need them. I use an example that Napoleon is the greatest unknown user of an iPad. He could have won Waterloo with a, with a spy satellite and an iPad and a GPS. He just didn't know he needed it because it didn't exist. So in marketing terms... Part of this is stimulating things so that you understand in scientific terms is creating a hypothesis and getting data. So you have to not be static. You have to be curious and open and try some things. And I think this is why we've lost a lot of touch among many politicians going back and sitting down with their constituents and explaining in plain language, this is the new thing that's coming up. This is some pros. This is some cons about it. Um, let me share with you what I think about what both the pros and the cons could be and why I think this could benefit or hurt us either way. And then have conversations with the constituents uh, to get some feedback from them. But if, but this, this is really part of factual problem solving and being having a basis in some reality versus cheating everybody yourself first and cheating your constituents second by using the shallow veneer of isms that's socialism that's liberalism that's conservatism that's gonna whatever those things are that are just faints and not real truths and discussion honest discussions of what it is that's being addressed i think are really that's where a leader will come in. A leader will sit down and say, this is really what's going on. Okay, so uh, I'll say, Doug, I, I want to agree with every single word that you just said. My problem, and this is, uh, now I'm going to turn it to Alan to respond here. Alan, being from Georgia, you know, you just witnessed a runoff election where if, you know, of course we know what actually occurred, but I think all of us could have predicted from November 5th until, what, January 5th, of 2021 when the election actually was held if the republican senators had come out and had acted as doug had suggested they acted they would have had zero success they wouldn't have got there so they couldn't have done those things that were right or that we elected them to do they can't even get there in the first place because their constituents will get them there so how i mean alan being from georgia and having to uh, be involved in all this what do you think about that yeah, I mean, sadly, I have a hard time arguing. I mean, from what I understand, well, let's, you know, pick Kelly Leffler, who, you know, people who knew her are saying, you know, she never wanted to be Trumpy. It was either you know, be Trumpy or lose to Doug Collins. You know, that's the most obvious. So I'm going to say, unfortunately, as much as you would not like to be that way, 
I mean, you can't change the facts on the ground. Well, I mean, in, in fairness to you, it could also be an example of, you know, trying to go where you think the constituents want you to go, but you're ignoring the fact that the constituents aren't just your base. I mean, right. I, I mean, well, unfortunately, in the age of uh, high polarization, I mean, you can no, your constituents aren't your base, but you are trying to win enough of the middle ground, you know, 50 percent plus one, theoretically. So so, Angie, so, I mean, if, uh, you know, if we're balancing, we're, we're, we're asking politicians to do the right thing. Um, you know, we're tipping the scales towards doing the right thing versus necessarily what their constituents want at the moment. So for you, Angie, does that mean if a Republican comes in and does the right thing and votes their conscience? I don't know, maybe if, if the Republican uh, senator for your state, for Ohio, had voted to convict Trump, would that have earned your vote the next time they ran for re-election? Yeah, I voted for him the first time. Okay. All right. Uh, yeah, I. But now he's not running, so it's not an issue. But I, it might have affected me if he was still running because I would have been really annoyed about this. And though I don't agree with everything he does, I've been relatively happy with his job until he decided to abandon all that. <laughs> I guess. I you know I have one Dem and one Republican senator, which is a really rare thing now. So the Dem one that, you know, doesn't often disappoint me, but even Rob didn't for the most part until all this Trump stuff. So do you think that uh, there's a lot of voters out there like you? I mean, if the voters are the ones that eventually, you know, at the end of the day, they're the ones who put the politicians in office in a Republican form of government. Do you think there's enough of them out there to have kind of your perspective on it? I don't know anymore. It used to be it was possible. That's how we ended with one of each. And locally... Believe it or not, I'm in a red county, but all the local politicians are Dems. And we do that a lot. It, it's just like the national thing is a different thing. I, I really can't explain it. It's just we, we will locally vote a lot of Dems, but then when like something national, I don't know if it's tribal or what, then they all back. We're, you know, we were always a swing state. This year it didn't look like it. So I don't know. I, I know a lot of rational conservatives. Everybody isn't crazy. So it's possible, I guess. So I mean, uh, they okay. like um, the other guy so much because he's very pro-worker. I mean, he has some real liberal ideas, but they, 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 that seems to be overridden by the fact that he's very pro-worker. Sherrod, who I wish would have ran, actually. So, uh, so I guess, Amy, we'll end the segment with you. I mean, uh, so what, uh, what would earn your unanimous written consent? You know, somebody fighting for policy victories and what their constituents, or I guess what their constituents want. Uh, actually, I, I'm putting on my educator hat here just for a moment because we have an interesting historical perspective on this from my adopted home state, a Commonwealth of Kentucky. On October 24, 1795, the Kentucky Gazette printed a petition from the inhabitants of Clark County to that state's legislature. The petitioners angrily denounced U.S. Senator Humphrey Marshall for his vote in favor of ratifying a controversial treaty. The citizens urged the legislature to instruct Marshall to oppose the treaty should it come before the Senate again. Keep in mind, this is back when the legislature's 
of the individual states and or commonwealths, directly elected senators. They were not elected by the people. So a Federalist facing a hostile Jeffersonian Republican legislature, Humphrey Marshall appealed directly to the people through a series of articles explaining his vote. He asserted that as a senator, he was less interested in winning popularity contests than in doing his duty to the nation, according to my own best judgment and the will of God. Shortly afterwards, a mob dragged Marshall from his home. Only by seconds did the skilled order talk the crowd out of throwing him into the Kentucky River. However, he was later stoned by angry citizens in the state capitol and had to keep a low profile for the remainder of his term. Um, yeah. Are you telling me that anything in that doesn't sound familiar? The, the senators, the congressmen, the state legislators who have come out and said, look, Trump lost, we're moving on, let's talk about policy again. In the face of an angry mob, what do they do? And Marshall was elected by the state legislature, Commonwealth legislature. He was not elected by the people. So he had less of an impetus to really pay attention to what they were saying, except for that whole stoning business. It seems that Kentuckians know a bit about statesmanship. It is shocking, isn't it? Well, considering the, the Kentuckian senators that you have now, it definitely seems shocking, I think. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, Kentucky's still got a few gems. Well, actually, <laughs> Jack, you are uh, you are setting this up perfectly, I have to say, um, because what I was going to move us next to was Jack from Kentucky, the youngin here, who uh, y- you probably couldn't tell just by listening to all of us, um, has actually come up with uh, or has started to publish his own podcast. So as a fan pod, we would like to be fans of another pod. Huh? Anyway, um, so anyway I like it. Jack's, Jack's new podcast is The Rundown. Jack, tell us about it. All right, yeah. So um, thank you, by the way, for including this. Um, I'm flattered. But uh, yeah, The Rundown is kind of just my dream of nerdery. I've been a podcast enthusiast for a while, so I've always wanted to do one, but I never really knew where to start. But now that I have the opportunity to do so, I just, like, am going full out. Like, so basically every episode, which they should be released somewhat weekly, um, I'm going to try to have a guest on, and we're going to talk about something uh, we have a, we share a common interest in. Um, and we're just going to basically talk about that for an hour. And so basically the topics that you'll see most come up are politics, history, um, film, uh, musical theater, since I'm an actor, uh, and video games, and possibly even um, theology or religion at some point. So I'm really excited um, to um, dive into this thing more. We have two episodes out now. Um, and yeah, if you want to find it, it's on Spotify. And the uh, cover of it looks like it's a blue background, and it's got James Madison on, and it says The Rundown. So Go check it out. Well, I mean... Go Jack. Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and speak for everybody, whether or not they've given me license to do so, but I'm going to go ahead and speak for everybody that I... I uh, you know, somebody like yourself who's... Uh, who's I, 
apparently at your age on now on two podcasts. Um, it's an encouraging thought. So, you know, Hey, all of that, by the way, but it sounds great to me. I'm interested in all of those things, but, uh, if you have not already, uh, gone and listened to the rundown, definitely go and access it, subscribe, do all those things that I guess we're supposed to do nowadays. So anywho, anybody have any final thoughts, anything they want to add to our pod today? Um, I would request that we add a link to Jack's podcast in our show notes. And I am looking forward to Jack's return to this podcast for his excellent, I hope, discussion about Hamilton and his actual views as opposed to the musical version. That's a very good point. That's uh, I, I, I like that. Look at that. First time podcaster with us, and she's already helping us uh, – you know, tease everybody to come back for the next episode. Um, but I'll definitely, uh, Amy would prefer as a parliamentary, I'll second that motion there. Um, and uh, I look forward to it as well. Um, Jack's uh, analysis of as Hamilton's been before. Anybody else? No, you won't. This is a podcast. <laughs> hey. All right. So oh, did, I, did I mess that up? That you messed that up because what I'm gonna <laughs> say is Robert, I'm gonna go ahead and say now, and we're gonna leave this in. We're not even gonna edit this out because we're a fan podcast. That's what we do. Um, so anyway, I want to thank everybody for contributing today. Thank you, uh, listeners, for joining us. We want to again encourage everybody to subscribe to the Dispatch. Go to dispatch.com. Uh, join us on Discord, and of course, uh, join us in the comments sections. Uh, and we will see you next time. No, you won't. This is the podcast. <laughs>